0: This podcast is offered by San Francisco Zen Center on the web at sfcc.org. Our public programs are made possible by donations from people like you. Good evening or good morning. Let's see a couple of people who it might be good morning for. Yeah. Um, my apologies that we're not, for those of you who are local, that we're not in the Buddha Hall. Um, I find out this afternoon that I had COVID, so we canceled the on site portion of the talk. Um, and on, on a point of business, you know, in terms of tracking down any people I may have um, had. Contagious contact with—I <laughs> don't think there is anyone. But if if you—if I'm forgetting somebody, um, let me know or let me know. Uh, anyway, it's quite fitting that um, I would—I would have COVID, given what I was hoping to talk about which is, um, in a way, old age, sickness, and death. But really what I wanted to talk about was caregiving. Yeah. I, I, I came back uh, on the weekend from spending um, almost two weeks with my daughter, about 11 days with my daughter, who was having a, a surgery to remove a cancerous tumor in her throat beside her thyroid. And uh, she asked me if I would um, come up and essentially be her primary caregiver. And and of course I said, yes. Uh, I have some experience in that. And um, it's an extraordinary kind of immersion Uh, that is especially around serious illness. Uh, Actually, in her case, it's not so clear what the prognosis is. But but certainly, it it was a cancerous tumor that was removed. One of the things I've learned about uh, caregiving is that the person going through the process of being ill, of needing care, of having their life disrupted by this illness, you know, of having normal taken apart uh, and being presented with the more ephemeral version of reality. And, And in the process of being there, I was thinking one of the thoughts I had was I remember when my daughter, when she was 12 and she asked me if she could volunteer at Zen Hospice and I was quite concerned that that would just be too much for her, um, but she was insistent, and she did. And then I was quite concerned again at, at Zen Hospice, which used to be uh, just down the block from uh, 273, it was, from that little mini park across the street and down the block from the city center. Uh, I find out that one of the people she'd been caregiving for was an elderly lady who had become, had had a a reputation for being kind of grumpy and critical and demanding. And and then I heard that Audrey, my daughter, had um, spent quite a bit of time with her that day. And so I was checking in sort of making sure that she didn't come away too damaged from this this person's uh, impulses to be critical and demanding. And my daughter very casually said, well, she's dying. I mean, who wouldn't be grumpy when they're dying? (laughs) No, (laughs) nobody likes it. (laughs) And maybe there's exceptions to that. Would I was struck by the casual uh, wisdom of it, and so when I was caring for her, um, thoughts like that would arise, you know. I, I was contrasting the process to when I first became a monk in Thailand, and the first practice I was given was walk around and everything and everyone you see say, this is impermanent. This is subject to being and passing away. You know? This is subject to old age, suffering and death. And I was comparing that to um, Audrey's approach. Uh, and of course, She's my daughter, so you'll have to excuse my bias in terms of uh, who she is and how she's engaging this. I want to admit that. Uh, she has chosen to post um, how things are progressing for her on uh, social media. I mean, I know she's on several platforms, the only one I look at is Facebook because i get got a link to it. And, and she has uh, chosen to continue to write and do art as she engages in, in, in her illness, mm-hmm. except for the days right after surgery. It was about three or four days where she was just too tired to really uh, do anything. Other than lie in bed and be fed and simple things like that, yeah. and that's what prompted me to bring it up in tonight's talk. Mm-hmm. Now, my my usual thinking is that it's polite and practical to be discreet around someone mm-hmm. illness. Who knows if they want to talk about it, or they'd rather not talk about it. Uh, It it opens them to, in a way, an unwelcome demand, potentially an unwelcome demand. As someone tells them, oh, well, here's a uh, a particular remedy. I know a great Chinese medicine doctor that would be wonderful for you to see, (laughs) that sort of thing. And indeed, there was someone who said that to her in my presence, and I thought, oh, well, there it is. But her choice to make it public, her choice to live her life in in a open way, to express her thoughts, to um, to engage her art, her making art, she's a painter, in a kind of wordless dialogue with her illness. Um, I was struck by it. I, I was struck by it in a variety of ways. Uh, One, as I just said, it's not an inclination that I personally have Mm -hmm. to be that public. Um, And that also, I was was struck by um, what what I perceive as a kind of deep existential proposition. It's just like, yes. This life is impermanence. This life will come to an end. And in the meantime, let's make art. Let's write, you know, let's plan the future. Let's let's maintain our concern about global warming. Let's attend to uh, what we find valuable, precious, worthy of cherishing in our life. And as I thought about it, I thought, um, I thought, well, is this the bodhisattva way in contrast to the guidance and the instruction I was given when I became a monk in Thailand? Which to me was... My experience of it, it was sort of upholding a certain dispassion. Uh, yes, this is what's going to happen. So don't cling, don't get too attached. Uh, promote a dispassion within yourself. Uh, And I was thinking in a way, what Audrey was proposing was uh, sooner or later, life will break your heart. That's the nature of impermanence. One of the Bodhisattva vows came to mind. Delusions are inexhaustible. I vow to practice with them. Often we say, I vow to end them, but I think really what, we, what that end there is getting at. I vow to not get stuck, to end the way I get stuck, the way I, they stimulate my fears, and my grasping, as I try to uh, wrestle with this existential dilemma of living and dying, you know, on Arhan, it says, great is the matter of birth and death. Audrey and I said, it's usually operations are early in the morning, so we were sitting in the pre-operation room, 6.30 in the morning, all the little protocols, and Chris is nodding, as yes, yes. <laughs> you know all that, don't you? <laughs> uh, and then literally five minutes before the surgery the surgeon enters the room and by this time we the protocol had been going on for a good almost two hours we arrived at there at six thirty, 30 and, and the surgery was at 8 30 so it was about literally 8 25 and he came in and um And I was thinking, ah, what is it to meet others' impermanence day by day? What what is it to um, let the whole process of the existential dilemma of the great matter of birth and death what is it to let it tenderizes? Yeah. What is it to remember? Well, just as Audrey said, well, wouldn't you be grumpy if you were dying? Yeah. Who knows? Well, it's hard to imagine that wouldn't be what part of the repertoire of emotions, I, mean, I, I suspect we all go through a wide range As Suzuki Roshi said, um, I will suffer, talking about his own death when it was imminent. I will suffer, but that's okay. I'll be a suffering Buddha. And I was thinking of the surgeon, you know? Is, is is, Is this how he engages this? In some ways, he seemed to be trying to be upbeat, which, honestly, I thought was a little odd, but I think he was also trying to be reassured and kind. And and he said a few words. And how interesting it was, I can't remember single thing he said. But I remember his affect. I remember the way he was attempting to make contact. I remember the way he was trying to be reassuring, you know. This surgery is not that complicated. I'm going to, you know, make the incision here and I I think the great matter of birth and death does indeed call up a dilemma for us. You know, the the impermanence has has its own authority. The the reflection on uh, death is a very powerful one. It's inclined to bring up for many people, myself included, I must say, Elizabeth Kubler Ross's stages: you know, denial, avoidance, you know, bargaining, anger, uh, resignation, yeah. all of these. And as she found out when her own death was coming, not in the orderly fashion she laid them out in her first teachings, she discovered that even though she'd been teaching those for 30, 40 years, that when it came her turn, it was tumultuous. Um, I had been present when Audrey was born, and I had been present when she gave birth to her son. And uh, as we sat there, you know, waiting for this surgical procedure, you know, that sense of um, the continuance of life, you know, how each one of us makes a precious contribution. And then in another way, each one of us is just part of what Thich Nhat Hanh would call continuance. Yeah. I'm this generation, she's the next, and her two boys are the next. And yet, some deep sense of belonging arises for us. And I would say that it's precious, you know? Uh, I don't think of it as contradicting the dispassion of the Arahant. I think of it as teaching us how to live a compassionate, authentic life. And I was watching Audrey's art as it evolved and has evolved through this illness. And, and thinking, oh, I, 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 to my eye, I see a shift. It's somehow the preciousness of life is encoded in her imagery, in her attention to detail, in in the layers of detail that she puts on canvas. That way, part of our challenge is to live this wild and precious life that we have. As Mary Oliver says in her poem, I don't want to say I was hesitant, filled with regret and adversity. Yeah. What do we want to say as we face this world of innumerable delusions? Actually, I also take exception with the word delusion. It, 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 like, of course, we have some notion you know, about what life is. Of course, we have some way of formulating it and conceptualizing it and giving it meaning and purpose. Um, and I would say the challenge for us in our practice is to both cherish that and not get stuck in it, not get stuck in our clinging and grasping, not becoming uh, desperate. And all this processing within me and attending to my daughter in her bed, at first too tired to move, just cooling up her head as she sipped some water. Um, in all of this, in the wordless moments of caregiving, And when is such an approach not appropriate? You know? Oh, it's more appropriate to be hostile, to be resentful, to be uh, callous, indifferent. Um, that strange way, which I don't think we can ever puzzle out The great matter of birth and death and how we belong, you know, how we belong biologically, and I think how we belong spiritually. To me, one of the great gifts of giving a talk in the Buddha Hall is that. We're there together and something happens that goes beyond our thinking. You know, we can, we can, of course, we can conceptualize it and say, oh, well, we look around and we see others, and we feel like, oh, I belong. This is my tribe. In early Buddhism, ordination consisted of a certain number of the tribe being present and welcoming you into the monastic order. I think it was about 20. Uh, an interesting notion, belonging. And I was thinking. Um, As you can tell, I had a lot of time to think (laughs) while my daughter slept. um, I was thinking about um, the breadth and the depth of the Bodhisattva vow to belong to everyone and for everyone to belong to us individually. Like who would we want to deny their struggle with their life and their death? Why wouldn't we want that to be uh, precious for everyone? And how is it that it teaches us how to look? How is it that it teaches us um, What's really important? Casual conversations I had with my daughter. And the fierce and courageous person that she is, just turning it towards, Engagement, laying out her plans for being part of the response to global warming, climate change, which she's quite passionate about. And then for me, from my own background of Theravadan Buddhism, the dispassion, the non-attachment that's evoked through dispassion, and then the Zen way, the Bodhisattva way, where we enter this world knowing that indeed it will break our hearts That's part of the package of being born is that someday we're going to die. Uh, and how that, um, I, th- I think of Hakuin. Hakuin, uh, very early in his practice, became a uh, the way I've read it is quite literally terrified about the notion of death and and, and so he was on this quest to somehow um, I don't know if he was trying to overcome dying or whether he was just trying to overcome his terror but the way in which The passion he brought to it it was very troublesome for him. You know, the way it's written up in in many of the versions is that he went to see a Taoist healer who gave him a, a, a visual practice to allow something to release within him. that that enabled him to take that very same passion, that very same energy and vitality and allow it to come forth as an expression of liberation. And I'd suggest to you, this is our Bodhisattva about That we explore, hopefully, discover ways in which we can take this passion for being alive. And rather than sort of corralling it into desires and aversions, that that we let it find a fuller expression that we're guided by... um, this deep, intrinsic belonging. Quite recently, I was reading a book by a, a biologist who has, you know, a doctorate in, in, um, in biology, which he also has trained as a Celtic, in a Celtic Druid tradition. And and so when she first would say uh, just being in the trees, being with them nourishes us, our human being. And, And she was writing that, you know, at first she was just dismissed in the academic world. She was just dismissed as a kind of eccentric quack. And then somehow as, as our physics, as our science has refined itself, you know, we've discovered that uh, the, the very oxygen that the trees give off uh, stimulates our being. That, that within it, there are particles that, that actually have a sort of curative and um, refreshing quality to them and, and now she's uh, considered to be you know an avant-garde uh, wise person uh, i suspect much to her amusement yeah. the way in which this world you know and the desires and the aversions of it are so blatant, you know, in ourselves and in our societies, and, uh, and in the way we govern ourselves, in the way we set priorities, um, and how uh, caregiving is is is. is A way to engage the bodhisattva way that draws us back home, that draws us back into belonging. And that as we do that, we discover we can't own it. You know, we can't own anything. And and just Greedily saying mine. It, it's an interaction. It's an interbeing. So I've come to appreciate Audrey's social media excursions. And, and also to see something of, uh, to be instructed in some way to trust some part of myself. But that expression for me will take shape in whatever way it does. It's not simply a matter of mimicking my daughter or anyone else, you know. when he was terrorized by his own mortality, uh, it wasn't a plan. He didn't, I'd if he was thinking, and this is really going to enlighten me, you know. By his own description, he, it, it he felt tormented by the whole thing. So how do we commit? It seems to me there's a kind of reckless appreciation for this life, and almost paradoxically, there's there's a deep knowing we're just this generation, you know. And there's been many generations before us and there'll be many generations after us. And we're just this species on the planet. And there are many other species and plants and ocean mammals and birds. And and that we interbe in a way that's extraordinarily challenging for us to conceptualize. But I think when we care, in particular when we give care, we we start to feel the connection. Okay. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this podcast offered by the San Francisco Zen Center. Our Dharma Talks are offered free of charge, and this is made possible by the donations we receive. Your financial support helps us to continue to offer the Dharma. For more information, please visit sfcc.org and click Giving. May we all fully enjoy the Dharma.